Good morning. It's July the 12th, and today I'm going to read just a little bit after we sit um, from Sylvia Borstein's book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sakes. This is a book, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist, Buddhist Path of Kindness. Looks like this. This, um, I love that the title includes the Buddhist path of kindness because we're, we need to always remember that. That kindness, uh, we often call it metta or loving kindness, friendliness, that we offer not only to ourselves and how we, how we see ourselves and letting go of judging ourselves and embracing ourselves more and that becomes the pathway to our feeling, having those feelings towards other, other people, other beings. So let's sit first and then I'll read some. Her introduction is, a, is really lovely. I don't know if we'll read this book, but we might read just selections from it. So first let's sit really prepare ourselves for being awake and uh, open, open-hearted today and listening to these beautiful words of Dhamma. So just let your body feel upright, maybe roll your shoulders back. Close your eyes if you can. Just begin to let go and keep the focus of your breath. Keep your focus on the breath. The body's doing the breathing. Be aware of the body breathing. Be grateful for that breath. Now as you breathe, be sure you're relaxing the body and you can relax into that good posture. You support if you need it, but then relax, let go. Imagine that tension is just releasing all over your body, that sense of agitation, of restlessness, of worry. Just see if you can let it drop.
nothing else needs to be on your mind. Your thoughts will arise and just let them rise up. Then just by paying no attention to them, they'll eventually go away. They don't have to be a problem. See them rise and just allow them to fall away. <clears throat> Just be aware of the breath. We aren't following it through the body, we're just being aware of it. Usually around the nostrils, as we breathe in and out, we notice how it feels. Just in, right in that area, underneath the nostrils, right on the inside of our nostrils, we may feel the tickle, coolness as we breathe in, warmer, moist as the air comes out. Or you can choose to be focused on the rising and falling of your belly. Just notice, you don't have to have your hands on your belly. You can just be aware. Keep your focus on the breath.
you can be aware of the quality of your breath. Notice if it's deep or shallow. Notice if one breath is long and another is short. The breath, the pattern of the breath changes. Nothing to do, just breathe. Notice if your body is still relaxed. Now as we end our meditation, may everything we do and say and think today be done not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May we be a refuge for ourselves, and by our words, thoughts, and actions, may we create refuge for others.
Okay, that seems short, but we still have time. That seems seems short, but we better jump into our reading to get a little reading. If you have more time today, try to sit. There's always that possibility. Or just stop and once in a while, uh, maybe remind yourself just to stop and breathe and just focus on your breath. Just noticing at one point. Notice the breath at one point. Don't, don't go through your body with your breath or you'll That's not, that's not good. <laughs> so let's start with uh, Sylvia Borstein's book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sakes. For Goodness Sake. The introduction is explaining and talking about the Paramitas. Goodness and Kindness. My friend Lou Richmond took ill suddenly and almost died of viral, whoops, excuse me, make sure kind of noisy in my background, uh, and almost died of viral encephalitis. Lou and I are longtime members of a Buddhist teacher colleague group that he called, that he named rhinoceros for what he saw as our common tendency to stake out individual independent paths. At a rhino meeting just a few days after Lou's crisis had passed, Several of the group members reassured that he would live, admitting to having begun to compose his eulogy. We mentioned his many talents. Lou is a Zen teacher and a pianist and a composer and an author and a lecturer and a business consultant who is the CEO of his own computer design company. The best thing about Lou, though, Jack said, is that he is a truly good person. Roger laughed. Do you suppose, he said, that after all our sophisticated Buddhist discussions and all our meditation practice and all our teaching, that what it's all about is being a truly good person? I do. The Buddha was a profoundly good person. He was generous and moral, restrained and patient, honest and open-hearted. He was also tough. He did not confuse compassion with passivity. He obligated monks and nuns to leave the community when their presence was disruptive. In one of his early incarnations, he killed a murderer out of compassion to spare him the pain he would suffer in later lifetimes for the heinous crime he was, a, <clears throat> he was about to commit. He acted wisely and energetically out of love on behalf of all beings. We could too. Most of the meditators I know began their practice hoping for special and exotic experiences. I was hoping to lessen, perhaps even erase, my perception of pain in the world. Instead, my sense of the suffering in the world deepened. What surprised me were the experiences of awe and wonder and appreciation that made the suffering bearable. What surprised me even more was that dedication to goodness, dedication in response to an inner moral mandate rather than external restraint, 
was both the antidote to the pain and the source of great happiness. When people ask the Dalai Lama, is Buddhism a religion? He answers, yes, it is. Then they ask, what kind of religion? He responds, my religion is kindness. You might think everyone's is. Everyone's is, that's true. It's not complicated to describe the goal of a spiritual life. It's easier than you think to explain it. It's more difficult than you can imagine to do it. A magazine journalist interviewed me on the telephone for an article about newly emerging religious forms. He wanted to know what I thought about people mixing and matching religions. I responded clearly disingenuously, given that I am both a Buddhist teacher and an observant Jew. Are people doing that? The interviewer said, yes, indeed, people are just taking what they like and making up their own religions, like salad religions, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Whatever they like, they mix it in. Do you think it's good or bad? I said, well, I don't know if it's good or bad, if people are doing it, maybe it's a reflection of what the psychoanalyst Eric Erickson called the American character. He believed we are inspired by what we think of as the pioneer spirit, like cowboys, independent, able to go out on the range alone, taking the best of what's available and making it work. And maybe it also means that people are realizing that what seemed important to them in their life materialism and consumerism doesn't work at all to make a happy heart. It actually makes an unhappy heart and an unhappy world. And maybe people are discovering that they really need something that speaks to the essence of their being, something that connects them directly with conscious intention to the truth of their experience so that their lives become meaningful. Maybe it is a good thing he said, but do you think it could be dangerous? I said, I don't know if it could be dangerous. I suppose there might be a pitfall. What would the pitfall be? I replied, well, if you were in a religion all by yourself, you would have nobody to encourage you if you were making progress to tell you that's great. And you also wouldn't have anybody to tell you that you were deluding yourself and that nothing was happening. Then he asked, what's supposed to happen? What's supposed to happen? What's supposed to happen is that our vision becomes transformed. We begin to see with increasing clarity how much confusion and suffering there is in our own minds and hearts. And we also see the ways in which our own personal suffering create suffering in the world. That part is heartbreaking and totally daunting, but that's not all. We also get to see the extraordinariness of life, how amazing it is that life exists and continually recreates itself in an incredible, spectacular, mind-boggling, lawful way. When we see clearly our awe and our thanksgiving for the very fact that life is happening, 
makes it impossible to do anything other than address the pain in the world, to try to heal it, to hope never to add one single extra drop of pain or suffering to it. As our understanding increases of pain, as our understanding increases, our hearts become more responsive. We become the compassionate people we were meant to be. That's the whole point of practice. That's what's supposed to happen. There was a very long pause because I had gone from measured, thoughtful teacher to thundering preacher in about 30 seconds. Then he said, very good. It is good. The Buddha called the message he taught good medicine. It's medicine with two active ingredients. One ingredient is a set of lifestyle choices, how we act, how we speak, how we work, how we manage our relationships that produces a contented heart. The other is a program of practices for paying attention that develop the direct personal experience of the end of suffering, the liberating awareness of the changing nature of all experience, the absolute trust in the interconnectedness of everything in creation that makes every single act important and means that each of us make a difference. I'm grateful to the journalist who asked what's supposed to happen. I got to hear how passionately I believe that paying attention, mindfulness, shows itself as goodness and kindness, as concern for others, as concern for the whole world. That's what this book is about. That's what I most want to teach. Accounts of the Buddha's life normally begin with his birth as Siddhartha Gautama in 563 BC in northern India and continue with accounts of his childhood, his marriage, his renunciation of his life as a prince in response to his awareness of life's suffering, his vision of a monk free of suffering, and his own desire for that freedom. The central point of these accounts is always the experience known as his enlightenment. His experience after many years of intense meditation practice as a monk of deeply understanding the habits of mind that create suffering and through that understanding freeing his own mind of those habits forever. The Buddha called his understanding Dhamma, the truth, the meaning of things, and he taught it for 40 years. Over the centuries, this message spread through Asia, became incorporated into the religious understanding and practices in many countries there, and served as a basis for the different forms of Buddhism that have continued to develop throughout the world. Legends about the Buddha also include stories of the many previous lifetimes of Siddhartha Gautama, including pre-human incarnations in which he was an incredibly patient buffalo or a tirelessly compassionate bird in which he perfected 10 particular qualities of heart that laid the foundation for his later Buddhahood. 
Those same paramitas, perfections of the heart, were said to be the qualities that he naturally and effortlessly manifested and radiated all the rest of his life. The stories of the Buddha's complete understanding and totally perfected heart inspire me enormously, however incomplete and unperfected my own understanding and practice may be. The stories of his many, many years, indeed lifetimes, of intense practice empower my own resolve. I don't think about having total understanding forever. I think about having enlightened moments, instances in which I see clearly and choose wisely. I think about those moments becoming more frequent, more habitual. I think of how much happier my life is becoming as I make wiser choices, and that's enough. And that's a beautiful paragraph. Just think about how you see your life uh, over your lifetime. How do you think about your own life? Uh, what, what, it, what do you see? I don't think about arriving at a totally perfected heart either. I am, however, tremendously glad to have the paramitas as a spiritual practice because they are ways of behaving. And although I am not in charge of what I think, I am, most of the time, responsible for how I act. Someone said recently in a class discussion of the paramitas, how it works for me is that my mind thinks whatever it thinks, and then my heart decides what I'll do. It's wonderful to know we can do that. It's also wonderful to think that practicing kind-hearted response is habit forming. Let me read that sentence again. It's also wonderful to think that practicing kind-hearted response is habit forming. Short of perfection, it's enough. So we'll end with this. Uh, here is the list of the paramitas. Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. I love this list. I love knowing that all of these qualities are the natural, built-in inclinations of the human heart. We aren't born with the inclination to play the violin or tap dance or do needlepoint. We have the physical equipment, eyes, arms, ears, hands, feet, and the mental equipment, memory, and sometimes talent to learn all of those skills. My sense though, is that in cultures where those activities aren't done, no one thinks about doing them. Human beings, however, do not need lessons in friendliness. We are relational. When we aren't frightened into self-absorption, we look out for each other. We take care of each other. And I love it that all of these qualities seem like gifts that people give each other. 
perhaps generosity, the first of the paramitas, most, most immediately evokes the, the idea of giving something to someone else. But I think all the paramitas are gifts, and they are mutual gifts. The givers and the receivers benefit. So I'll stop there because our time is up. But I, I like the way she's writing, and this is just the introduction. So this might be this may be a good book to really, um, really also. I think what we'll see with Sylvia is we'll see a great deal of balance. Uh, that finding balance between and finding how our spiritual life is really just our regular life. It's just what we place more focus on. It's just how we, uh, where we get the most joy in living our lives. So I think she'll be a, a really wonderful teacher in that. So uh, we'll stop there for today and I hope everyone is doing well and that you have a beautiful day and that you can work with your problems. Sometimes our problems are things we can, um, as Joseph Goldstein says, and I think Tara Brock mentions it in her latest book, if you have problems, uh, see if you can think about these are not problems. They're they're things that come up in life, in a normal life, and uh, don't focus on the problem aspect. Just focus on where you are with the situation, what you need to do, what you might need to find out about, but just let it let go the even the concept of a problem. Um, so try to look at the look at your life as the whole the whole thing. Not just, not just maybe the one little spot, like the brown spot in an apple would be the problem. It doesn't ruin the whole apple. Okay, thank you everybody. Thanks for being part of my practice. <laughs>